Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, J. Christopher Giancarlo discusses the impediments to economic recovery. Roger Pallon celebrates the Magna Carta. Journalist Jim Antle talks about moving to a more libertarian foreign policy. Michael Tanner discusses the recent tragedies in Baltimore. And attorney Jeff Rose discusses what stands in the way of telemedicine. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. This month in the halls of the Senate, we saw a filibuster, another filibuster from Senator Rand Paul as part of the large debate over the reauthorization of the Patriot Act and its replacement or its suggested replacement, the USA Freedom Act. I'm Trevor Burris. I am a research fellow at the Center for Constitutional Studies. I am also the co-host of Free Thoughts, the podcast of libertarianism.org. Joining me today to discuss these issues is Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Patrick Eddington, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. So first, let me start off with uh, Julian. A question of uh, what happened this month? Uh, what was the timeline of events leading up to where we are now uh, in terms of the fight over the Patriot Act? Sure. Well, so we had a, a, a repeat of what we've seen in previous years, which is there are three provisions of the Patriot Act, uh, down from, I think, an original 16 that were scheduled to sunset. Most of the Patriot Act is permanent, so despite what you may have seen in the headlines, the Patriot Act never sunset, was never going to sunset. But three provisions were, uh, one of them certainly the most controversial, Section 215, uh, also known as the business records provision at the heart of the now infamous uh, NSA bulk telephone records program. Uh, it looked as though Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, believed that a strategy that had worked in the past would uh, be successful again, a strategy of effectively manufacturing a crisis, refusing to bring uh, the issue to the floor, the Senate, having, or the House, rather, having already passed by an overwhelming margin, uh, a reform bill called the USA Freedom Act that would modify and reform uh, big chunks of authorities that were not due to expire, as well as 215, but also extend the sunsetting authorities. It seems like McConnell thought uh, he could force essentially a clean reauthorization without any reforms and uh, that the House would be pressured to follow suit. But uh, that, it turned out, didn't work. It had worked for a long time. Uh, you sort of, again, push it up to the sunset date and say, well, we'd love to have a a lengthy and fulsome debate, but there's just not time and the terrorists will get us unless we uh, just sort of immediately comply. Uh, this time it didn't work. Uh, and, you know, Rand Paul was the one at the focus, I think, of a lot of the attention. But really what it came down to was, um, never mind 60 votes, McConnell didn't have a majority for anything, any kind of clean reauthorization. And so uh, there was a recess. They came back. Uh, still, there was no willingness to uh, uh, to buckle under as it happened before. And so briefly, those three provisions did sunset. They were grandfathered for existing investigations. So the bulk collection of telephone records for, I think, political more than legal reasons wound down. Uh, and uh, uh, But the others temporarily lapsed, but essentially continued for all ongoing investigations. And a few days later, finally, uh, McConnell essentially stopped, or having having stopped uh, forcing his uh, his block to oppose it, um, it was a cloture vote uh, by a wide margin, but it was too late to stop that temporary sunset. Um, a couple days later, after proposing some 
amendments to try and dilute it further. Uh, the USA Freedom Act did, in fact, pass. Um, and so the result now is, um, yes, those provisions that had briefly sunset have been extended for uh, four more years. And uh, more or as importantly, um, we've seen reforms across a number of authorities, uh, both the, one, the 215 authority that was expiring and two other authorities that weren't, uh, including national security letters, which can be issued by the head of FBI uh, field offices without a judge's approval to get tele, uh, telecommunications and financial records. Uh, now uh, they are required when issuing these or when seeking court applications under 215 or a related authority called 214, um, they must use specific selectors or specific selection terms to describe the documents they want, meaning um, they can no longer walk in and say we want uh, you know, all the phone records in New York or the United States or all the, uh, you know, records of people's emails uh, from Google, um, but rather they must use something more specific like an email address or a phone number and show that that specific record is relevant to their investigations, not merely that having a lot of records generally um, will contain some relevant records uh, that they can find at some point in the future. And that is the USA Freedom Act. Those are the main amendments that's, of the USA Freedom Act. That's, that's the central form, coupled with uh, uh, some, some additional transparency so that if there's a major interpretation of the law, um, they have to publish a declassified version of it so they can't once again in secret uh, reinterpret the law and not let public or the public or legislators uh, become aware of it. Now, Patrick, can you describe uh, the drawbacks and benefits of the USA Freedom Act as you see it? I mean, in part, we're not going to really know ultimately until it's been fully implemented. Um, and our friends at FreedomWorks are trying to prevent it from being implemented. They filed a lawsuit. Uh, last week, basically seeking to prevent a uh, restart of the bulk collection program, which in theory would be allowed for 180 days under the so-called transition period included in this bill. So the war over that is going to continue. I think that those who are always deeply skeptical of kind of the base legislation here have been of the opinion that given the fact that we know that NSA and DOJ officials have previously lied to the FISA court given the fact that they violated the privacy provisions um, of Section 215 for seven consecutive years and no one at DOJ or the FBI was held to account for that, that it's unlikely that they will faithfully implement essentially what we've seen here. Now, some of the privacy provisions uh, or some of the transparency provisions that Julian mentioned may help to uncover some of that uh, should, it, should it actually take place. But I, I kind of put this in, uh, in a larger context, which is this. We've known for years that this particular battle was coming, and I think everyone has been of the view that you're probably only going to get one bite at the apple here. And as we're beginning to find out now, as the battle has shifted back to the House of Representatives on appropriations bills and now the Intelligence Authorization Bill, which is on the floor of the House the week of, of June 16th, uh, we are seeing still some tactical successes by surveillance reform proponents. But those are probably going to be short-lived in that we're talking about appropriations amendments here. They've only passed through the House. We went. We saw this movie last year when Mr. Massey of Kentucky, Republican, and Ms. Lofgren of California on the Democratic side got an amendment through that would have prevented these backdoor searches of stored communications of Americans collected by NSA and also would have prohibited the companies from – or the government from mandating the companies building backdoors to technological products – 
That passed by 293 to 123 last year. It passed with 255 votes this time. A little bit more headwind because the House Intelligence Committee was putting out a lot of propaganda and disinformation about the provision. Not shocking there. Um, but it still passed. But our problem remains that the House leadership continues to be opposed to any kind of substantive surveillance reform that would really begin to kind of roll back a lot of these authorities. And, and the intelligence authorization bill that's on the floor of the House this week is operating under a particular legislative rule that has made a whole series of amendments that address these very issues that I just discussed out of order. So we're not going to see the closure of the so-called Section 702 backdoor loophole. We are not going to see improved whistleblower protections for intelligence community contractors like what Edward Snowden used to be and so on and so forth. So then that leaves us ultimately with yet another deadline in December of 2017 for the Section 702. That, of course, is going to come after the next presidential election, complete turnover of personnel, and so it just becomes a giant question mark in terms of where we go. Now, Julian, this is a, a disturbing factor of this, as Patrick mentioned, is that uh, it seemed that the NSA didn't even do what the statute had sort of they thought were, they were supposed to do, that they had been breaking it behind the scenes. And I believe it was Snowden's revelations that helped show that. So the, we seem to have possibly a parchment barrier between us and what they might do behind the scenes. Can you talk about how they broke the rules of the Patriot Act as it was written, as Jim Sensenbrenner, Jim Sensenbrenner, one of the authors, said this is not what it was supposed to be. So can we trust them going forward? The, the uh, original telephony program is actually the second uh, bulk collection program we know was launched. Uh, the first was under one of the other authorities that was amended by the USA Freedom Act. This is Section 214. All of these authorities are basically about getting metadata, getting the information about communications, which is very often, uh, especially in aggregate and in large volumes, um, as revealing, if not more revealing, than the contents of the communications. Um, and the argument in both cases, that both in, in the case of a 214-based internet, international internet and email uh, metadata bulk program, and then the later uh, Section 215 bulk telephone records program, was that uh, under an authority to get uh, records that were relevant to an investigation, meaning you know, records that had some kind of direct link um, to a particular investigation, the idea being, uh, you know, if you were investigating a charity that you thought might be a front for funding terrorism, um, perhaps you could get the communications records of the company itself or its uh, direct uh, employees and perhaps even people connected like major donors. Um, but the thought was not that uh, you would get uh, records indiscriminately about all Americans on the theory that, um, again, somewhere in that pool there would be relevant records. I was to say it's like the equivalent of saying uh, I want to get a search warrant for Washington, D.C. because I have probable cause to believe that somewhere in homes in D.C. there will be drugs. And indeed there will, somewhere. Um, but that is not the, the level of particularity that has traditionally been uh, required by our constitutional tradition, certainly in the case of, of physical searches. And I think by extension, even in um, the broader grand jury context. And that's why I think the Second Circuit Court of Appeals um, held when, they when we finally got a kind of high uh, federal appellate court to, uh, to examine this. They, they rather quickly agreed with uh, the logic of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which was um, you just have to ignore how this standard is applied in every other area of law to think that this would permit this kind of indiscriminate collection as opposed to much more 
targeted collection of things that are actually connected to investigations. And I think the attempt um, in the Freedom Act is to sort of force them to do that by requiring the evaluation to be at a, uh, at the level of more particularized records. In the same way, imagine you, you, you get that search warrant for an entire city by saying, well, we think there's probable cause to believe there are drugs there somewhere. Um, if you say, no, okay, but you've got you to have probable cause not to think there are drugs somewhere in the city, but rather somewhere in a particular house, um, you create a very different and more difficult uh, uh, challenge. Now, relevance is a much lower standard than probable cause, um, but the idea here is to sort of uh, try and compel the court and the, and the FBI uh, and the NSA uh, to comport with what was the original idea here, which is you to demonstrate the relevance of particular records. Don't just assert that some records will be relevant. Can we talk a little bit about that Second Circuit opinion that Julian mentioned? And it had an interesting interplay as the as the debate was going forward about whether or not the entire thing was was moot or possibly going to be moot. Patrick, what did the Second Circuit say and how is that related to going forward with either the Freedom Act or, or any future amendments we might have? Well, they, they used language that was actually very, very similar to what the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board used when they described the 215 program in their report. I guess it's been a couple of years ago now or maybe a year and a half ago, in that there is no statutory basis for the telephone metadata program, right? Which made it not a constitutional opinion. Which is how they have thus far dodged that entire constitutional question. That's in contrast to how Judge Leon here on the um, uh, in the federal district here in D.C. looked at this program in December 2013 when he ruled it just outright unconstitutional. Uh, and I highly recommend that folks take a look at that opinion because I think it's extremely well-reasoned. Now, whether it will stand up over time or not, I don't know. We'll have to see. Now, what do we say to those who uh, who are thinking and, the, of course, the main opposition coming from mostly Republicans but also Democrats that the even the watered-down version of the Freedom Act um, or any further watering down of the Patriot Act is going to let, let terrorists do things to us like 9-11 or other attacks and that it's just not worth risking it? One of the more astonishing things about this has been the utter paucity of evidence for the effectiveness of really almost any of these uh, bulk collection programs. Um, I think it's in part because we have a, a great Cato paper that uh, Jeff Jonas and uh, our colleague Jim Harper wrote about data mining and bulk uh, data analysis in the context of terrorism. Uh, predicted, I think, uh, and this has been borne out, that with a uh, heterogeneous and very low frequency kind of activity like uh, terrorism. Uh, it's just very, very uncommon. There are not a lot of terrorist attacks, and um, they tend to be pretty varied because there's so many different kind of targets. It's not like credit card fraud or uh, you know other other kinds of things that you try to use bulk data mining to detect. Where you know there's some patterns that are pretty predictable. Someone suddenly uses a card in Shanghai when they used it yesterday and. Uh, in Newark, maybe, and they're, they're worn on a plane, um, and it's something they don't usually buy. Something's something's funny going on. Um, so as it turns out, yeah, uh, th those techniques are just not as effective when it comes to something like terrorism. Now, you can use it to try and trace chains of association, uh, but you know, uh, one of the things they claimed here was, well, there was great value to having all this huge pool of historical data, but again, that's mostly noise. It's, you know, lots of hay uh, in the hopes that uh, by gathering more hay, you'll, you'll, you'll find the needles. Um, and every independent review just found that that was not the case, that, uh, that in fact, when they would get information from these massive bulk data sets, what they were invariably doing was duplicating 
what investigative agencies have already been obtaining with traditional methods. In fact, you find exactly the same thing that happened with the original warrantless wiretapping program the New York Times reported on in 2005. Uh, you have claims initially, Dick Cheney and others saying this has saved thousands of lives. It's an absolutely essential tool. Uh, and then when you circle back, it turns out, yeah, actually generally – uh, when it was people who were really up to no good, uh, the FBI had not had any trouble getting a FISA warrant. Those FISA judges are pretty happy to give you a warrant if you've got any evidence that someone is really uh, uh, engaged in, in, in planning violent activities. Um, and that uh, the, uh, you know, the, the folks that they were wiretapping who they didn't get warrants on were you know, mostly not connected to terrorism. And you see a very small number of those Americans who were targeted into that program ultimately getting uh, surveilled on the basis of uh, of warrants, you know they were chasing a lot of uh, uh, chasing a lot of wild geese. Uh, it's a pattern that crops up in intelligence again and again. Fusion centers, uh, all sorts of authorities. You see dramatic claims made, uh, and it turns out usually that uh, these invasions of privacy um, are not actually buying us the security we're promised. But no one wants to admit that. And another argument that you hear, or not so much an argument, I guess, a sentiment that comes from. <laughs> people who don't seem to mind this too much. So perhaps it doesn't do much to stop terrorism, as Julian says. But Patrick, someone people often say, well, if you don't if you're not doing anything wrong, then you shouldn't be worried about what the government is doing when it surveils you. Yeah, that, what, that, what do you say to that? Well, that's the common canard that, that floats around out there. You know, people say, well, you know, I've got nothing to hide, so I really don't care what they're doing. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you believe about your level of guilt or innocence. It only matters whether the government charges you with something. <laughs> and and that's what our entire structure, our entire constitutional structure, and particularly the Fourth Amendment, was designed to guard against in the first place is, is false accusations. And of course, we saw that in the case of Brandon Mayfield, the Portland, Oregon lawyer, Muslim-American convert, who was falsely accused of being involved in the Madrid bombing in 2004. And it started with a botched FBI fingerprint analysis that was then used in the FISA court to get every manner not only of wiretap, but they did sneak and peeks on his uh, – sneak and peek searches, I should clarify, on his house and so on. It, it literally turns your life upside down. And I think, you know, to kind of go back to something that Julian was talking about, what's damning about this whole episode when we talk about these surveillance programs, particularly the electronic surveillance programs, is that the government's own records demonstrate their complete ineffectiveness. So, for example, when you look at this series of inspector general reports that Charlie Savage at the New York Times finally got largely declassified in April of this year on the so-called President's Surveillance Program, better known as, as Stellar Wind, we find in that particular series of documents that they interviewed line analysts at the National Counterterrorism Center, at the FBI, and the CIA. And none of them, none of them had anything to say about this program having contributed to stopping a single attack on this country. While in those same reports, you had the officials at those agencies praising these programs, saying they were absolutely vital, absolutely essential. And this is the pattern that we see over and over again is that the line analysts, the line agents who are responsible for actually trying to find the real bad guys, they know a bad tool when they see it, but they are continuing to get saddled with it for, I think, as Julian alluded to, largely political reasons. I think we actually see something similar in another uh, recently released uh, declassified document, the, the uh, Inspector General's report, uh, redacted, but uh, still interesting and useful on uh, the use of 215 more generally uh, over a span of several years. That is not the bulk telephony program, but all the other types 
of uh, things it was used for, primarily internet records. One thing is that, again, you see clearly um, they couldn't, you know, it's not that it provided no utility at all, um, but when it came to say, um, well, is there a major lead in some serious investigation where this was really uh, an important tool, they couldn't come up with an example of, uh, yeah, this is a case we progressed uh, that we couldn't have done but for uh, this authority. And also, interestingly, it seems to re uh, refer reference another uh, bulk collection program. There's, they refer unredacted to the bulk telephone program. And then there's a footnote that says uh, something about the bulk collection of blacked out presumably not telephone records again, um, also collected the records of millions of people. Um, so uh, even after all the student revelations, it seems we haven't entirely gotten to uh, the bottom of what they were doing. But I do think there is a, a sort of psychological effect. Anytime you've invested either monetarily or morally, you've invested, in a sense, taken the risk of hoovering up millions of, of innocent people's records, it becomes very difficult to then say, well, that was all for nothing. Um, we wasted billions of dollars for nothing. We invaded millions of people's privacy and have nothing to show for it. And that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow and certainly to ask other people to swallow. And so you find against all evidence insistence that somehow some good must have come of it. Well, and, this, and this continues essentially to dominate what we're seeing with DHS as well, right? You look at the TSA programs and so on. It's exactly the same thing. Complete ineffectiveness, demonstrable ineffectiveness, and yet the money continues to flow. Well, gentlemen, there's much more to say about this, but unfortunately we run out of time. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to read more of Julian Sanchez's work or Patrick Eddington's work, you can find it online at cato.org. We are currently living through the worst economic recovery in a very long time. J. Christopher Giancarlo is commissioner of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He argued at a Cato conference in New York in June that the explosion of regulations serves as a major drag for the U.S. economy. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of economic fact that everywhere in the world today where there are free and competitive markets combined with free enterprise, personal choice, voluntary exchange, and legal protection of person and property, you will find the underpinnings of broad and sustained prosperity. Those elements lift millions out of poverty wherever and whenever they are deployed. Yet here at home, these same elements are under attack by critics of our financial markets. These critics constantly talk about separating markets from risk, as if they have no idea that risk and prosperity are invariably intertwined. Those critics say that risk can be extracted from the marketplace through centralized economic planning and direction. And they say income inequality can be reduced through increased political control over people's economic decisions. And they say that wealth redistribution should be tolerated by passing on to our children and our grandchildren additional trillions in national debt. Meanwhile, these critics of free markets hardly ever talk about regaining broad and durable prosperity. Yet prosperity was the common state of the American experience for us and for generations before us. And Americans still want prosperity to be the default state for their children. What we have today is just not good enough.
In fact, what we have today is simply the worst U.S. recovery from any recession since the Great Depression. Last year, the managing director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, dubbed current economic conditions as the new mediocre. That's actually a mild description for the state we're in. We learned last Friday that the U.S. economy actually shrunk by 0.07% between January and March of this year. In fact, for the past half dozen years, U.S. gross domestic product has grown at the slowest rate of growth since the U.S. began compiling reliable economic statistics a century ago. The official U.S. unemployment rate has fallen steadily during the past few years. Yet this recovery has created the fewest jobs relative to the previous employment peak of any prior recovery. The labor force participation rate is at a 36-year low of 62.5%. The number of Americans not in the labor force is at a record high of 93.7 million. One in three Americans between the age of 18 and 31 are living with their parents. And in one out of every five families, no one has a job. The plight of our middle class continues to deteriorate. Real disposable personal income is well below projected levels, and prospects for full-time jobs have diminished. Meanwhile, income inequality has grown as the number of Americans in poverty has soared to about 50 million, the highest level since the 1960s. The current explosion of federal regulations is a major drag on the U.S. economy. Regulations now cost the U.S. more than 12% of GDP, or $2 trillion annually. The average manufacturing firm spends almost $20,000 per employee per year on complying with federal regulations. And for manufacturers with less than 50 employees, that number is $35,000 per employee. As a former business executive, I can tell you that such an expensive regulatory burden is a big reason why the rate of hiring is so meager. In a recent major survey of CEOs of American companies, overregulation was overwhelmingly cited as a barrier to capital investment that would otherwise stimulate job creation. Still, Americans remain an aspirational people, despite the economic frustrations of the times we live in. I agree with Governor Jack Markell of Delaware, who recently wrote that Americans need jobs, not populism. Americans want robust economic growth, not excuses based on bad winter weather. If we're to meet our obligations to the next generation of Americans, we must address head-on the challenges of this new mediocre and take steps to replace it with broad-based prosperity and job creation. The answer, as I think most of you, if not all of you know, lies in economic freedom and opportunity, the same combination of ingredients that invariably leads to more prosperity, even for the poor, than does centralized political economic planning. As you know, capital markets such as the stock and bond markets play an essential role in marshalling resources and deploying them in productive ways. They serve as the link between savers and investors by shifting financial resources from surplus and waste 
to deficit and production. They allow the rational allocation of resources driving the expansion of manufacturing and industry. Moreover, adequate trading liquidity is the lifeblood of good financial markets. Liquidity is the degree to which a financial instrument may be easily bought or sold with minimal price disturbance by ready and willing buyers and sellers. The U.S. has long enjoyed some of the world's deepest and most liquid financial markets for trading U.S. Treasury and other debt, equity, and derivative securities. The health of the U.S. economy is strongly tied to deep trading liquidity. It's essential for overseas investors to remain willing to trade in our markets. If U.S. trading markets become shallower or less liquid, overseas investors will reduce activities in U.S. markets imperiling U.S. economic health. The Magna Carta is celebrated far more in the United States than it is in Europe, and that's for good reason. In June, Roger Pallon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, discussed how Magna Carta is seen today as a landmark on behalf of human liberty. It hardly needs saying, of course, that uh, we Americans owe an immense debt to the uh, nobles and clergy who 800 years ago uh, at Runnymede wrested from King John several of the rights and liberties we enjoy today, to say nothing of the rule of law that followed over the centuries, albeit unevenly, as Professor Helmholtz uh, noted. And yet we're also fond of believing that in 1776 our nation sprang fully formed ex nihilo, uh, as if by immaculate conception. As I'll discuss in a few minutes, uh, there's more than an element of truth in that conception. Indeed, we'll be celebrating it across the nation exactly one month from today. But when the fireworks have ended, uh, we should also recognize that uh, for all their advances, and they were many and profound, our nation's founders and the Constitution's framers drew much from the nation from which we broke 239 years ago. As an institutional matter, that inheritance begins with the common law, made over the centuries by judges adjudicating controversies between private individuals, one case at a time, a law recognized expressly in the Constitution's Seventh Amendment. In his classic Harvard Law Review essays on the higher law background of American constitutional law, Edward Corwin tells us that the common law's true beginnings predate Magna Carta. They arose in the third quarter of the 12th century when Henry II established circuit courts with a central appeals court, which over time made the law common to the realm of England. A half century later uh, comes Magna Carta, reflecting much of that nascent private law, with Magna Carta, we get the rule of law in the form of a written document brought into being not by an enactment but by a compact, a political act that established positive law, binding the king by his own hand, albeit not without the pressures of the regnant feudal system of the day. Add to that the hint of a future parliament reflected in the idea of the king's ruling in consultation with the, quote, common council of the realm, as in chapter 12's taxation provisions, and we have at least an adumbration of separated powers. Today, however, we see Magna Carta less for those broad institutional developments than as a muniment of English liberties. Yet the story of their travel abroad, my subject here, 
begins not in the 13th, but early in the 17th century, and in the mother country, with Magna Carta's reemergence from its eclipse under the Tudors, and the uses to which the great English jurist, Sir Edward Cook, uh, would put the chapter in his struggles against the Stuarts and, to a lesser degree, against Parliament itself. Those struggles would unfold just as English colonists began settling in America for fortunate accident of history. Thus, the charter and the very first of those settlements in Virginia in 1606 declared that the colonists and their posterity uh, as English subjects were to enjoy, and I quote, all liberties, franchises, and immunities to the same extent as if they had been abiding and born in England, language that would be repeated in charters from Massachusetts Bay in 1629 and Georgia in 1732. Meanwhile, developments back in England over this period, the 1628 Petition of Right, the 1679 Habeas Corpus Act, the 1689 Bill of Rights in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, each of which drew upon the ancient rights set forth in Magna Carta, did not go unnoticed in the colonies. William Penn, for example, having survived uh, his 1670 trial in England for preaching his Quaker beliefs, drew heavily on Magna Carta in his 1682 blueprint for Pennsylvania. A year later, the colony's assembly uh, enacted laws drawing on both Magna Carta and Lord Cook's writings on the charter. But as relations uh, with England deteriorated in the second half of the 18th century, Magna Carta came again to the fore, first as the basis for remonstrations to the mother country, then as the basis for state bills of rights and constitutions. Virginia led the way when its legislature protested the 1765 Stamp Act, citing the ancient constitution with its rights of English subjects not to be taxed without their consent, and its trial by jury, which the act had contravened. With the several Townsend Acts, however, which began in 1767, relations grew only worse, culminating in the so-called coercive or intolerable acts of 1774, Parliament's reaction to the Boston Tea Party a year earlier. Yet still, when the Continental Congress met in September of 1774 to draft a set of resolves, the delegates rested the case not only on an appeal to natural law, but even more on the principles of the English Constitution, charters, and compacts. Those petitions to Parliament, having gone unanswered save by fleets of armies, the blood of Lexington and the fires of Charleston and Falmouth, as John Quincy Adams would later write, the colonists soon prepared to sever their ties with the motherland. Yet the documents that both preceded and followed independence continued to draw on the principles first set forth in Magna Carta, as did the Declaration of Independence itself with its catalog of grievances not unlike those that gave rise originally to the Charter. In America, a radical change unfolded during the short span between 1774 and 1776, culminating in the Declaration of Independence. In it, we addressed not the king or parliament, but a candid world, justifying our independence, not in the name of our ancient rights as Englishmen, but in the name of the universal rights of all mankind. As the Declaration plainly states, we dissolved the political bands that connected us to England and instituted new government by the authority of the good people of these colonies. And where did we get that authority? 
We didn't get it from anyone save our creator. We were born with it, born free with natural unalienable rights to rule ourselves. Thus did the Declaration of Independence become America's Magna Carta. For decades, libertarians have expressed pointed and principled opposition to U.S. interventionism, offering alternatives that have been largely ignored by policymakers in Washington. Jim Antle, managing editor of The Daily Caller at a Capitol Hill event in May, discussed how to get to a less hawkish foreign policy. There's a, there's a strong bias uh, among the American people that when you face some economic or social problem, in favor of the government doing something. And when you say, well, the government shouldn't do anything in response to this problem, or the government should do some limited thing in response to this problem, people kind of say, I don't know, that sounds radical. Oh, gee, that's bad, I don't, I don't like that. People need health care and housing and education, and there should be less poverty. And, and, all. and you're saying that the government shouldn't fix these things is, is kind of how they react. Um, when it comes to foreign crises, when it comes to foreign crises, you have bad actors on the international stage. You have dictators. You have ayatollahs. You have, you have Fidel Castro. You have Vladimir Putin. If you if you say, well, yes, these people are bad and they're maybe doing bad things, but we don't necessarily need to intervene in this particular crisis, or we don't necessarily need to project our strength by getting tough with these guys in quite the way uh, that some interventionists are proposing, you get the same kind of responses when you, when you uh, are talking about why maybe the government shouldn't do this or that with regard to health care or poverty. It's like, gee, I, that's kind of radical and, and crazy. And, and like, if they don't do anything, you know, Putin is going to be in my house tomorrow and he's you know, going to annex it and everything will be terrible. And, but the interesting thing about it is you don't get the, these reactions, or you generally don't get these reactions, there are some exceptions, but you generally don't get these reactions from the same people. The people who understand, or are most likely to understand, that maybe government is not the answer or the solution to every domestic problem, are the, generally the most likely to be skeptical of that answer when it's presented in foreign policy. And that really makes people advocating a libertarian foreign policy, sort of men and, and women without a country. You know, there's no, in our binary political system, no party, no constituency that's really speaking for that viewpoint, at least not with confidence and, and comfort. Uh, I think you can see the evidence of that in the vote for the Iraq war. The congressional vote for the Iraq war, we all remember that virtually all Republicans, there were only seven who voted against authorizing the Iraq war, uh, but it's less well-remembered that many Democrats voted for it. Half the Democrats in the Senate voted to authorize the Iraq War. When, you, when we talk about people who voted the Iraq War, the, the, the list will include Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Richard Gephardt, Denny Hoyer, John Kerry, uh, Chuck Schumer, Harry Reid. These are not backbencher Democrats. These are, these are actually some of the leading and most prominent members of the party and, and, and people who are going to be presented in some cases uh, as the, the Peace Party's uh, next candidate for president of the United States. So that means that you really don't have, you know, as, as 
Phyllis Schlafly and uh, Barry Goldwater might say a, a choice uh, rather than an echo. You kind of have this sort of, you know, me tooism uh, even on the part of the of the Democrats. And in some respects, that makes sense because, you know, the Democrats are the party that likes to think that the government can keep everybody safe all the time and in every situation. But some of it is also a relic of 1980s and 1990s politics, where a lot of these people came of age. Uh, when the Democratic Party was perceived as weak on foreign policy, that it was perceived as uh, not adequately standing up to the Soviets in the Cold War. Sometimes they'd call them isolationists, but really was more often they were viewed as sort of peacenik, hippie, you know, liberal, kumbaya types. And a lot of Democrats internalized that critique and regarded it as a political liability that they were perceived in this way and do all these things, in some cases which they don't even necessarily believe in, do all of these things to adapt to this political liability and to sort of say, no, I'm tough too, I, you, you'll be safe with, a, with President Hillary as, as safe as you will be with President Marco Rubio. The, the, the odd thing about that is it doesn't really reflect some of the trends in public opinion, it's certainly not the trends in public opinion among a lot of rank and file Democrats. But a lot of times what happens is when people sort of come of age politically, they, they kind of stick with the, the ideas that, that were, you know, they adopted during their formative political years. So you have a generation of Democrats that is leading, you know, leading a party of people who are actually very hesitant to see such an outsized U.S. role in the world, and particularly uh, the, the role that we're currently playing in the Middle East, uh, they're being led by people who essentially want a more tepid version of what the most hawkish elements of the Republican Party advocate, uh, or in some cases, not even a more tepid version. And, I, and you're seeing a lot of the replay of Iraq uh, occurring with regard to the debate over Iran, not that I'm suggesting that I think any, any military action is eminent, but a lot of the core assumptions that are being batted around by both parties while discussing you know, how to deal with a potential Iran nuclear threat uh, are very similar to the core assumptions that kind of led us in, into the Iraq war. So what do we do about any of this? You know, there, there, there was a period where we were seeing real growth in the libertarian wing of the Republican Party and some chastened conservatives who were sort of moving over more towards that viewpoint. But as we've seen, you know, it's very easy to make those arguments on domestic policy when everything is going well and everything is prosperous. When there seems to be any instability in the world, it becomes much harder to make non-interventionist arguments in foreign policy. And the Republican Party seems at the moment to be reverting to form. But I don't think all is necessarily lost. One of the positives, I, I've, I think, is that I've always argued that we need to get people who are engaged in economics and domestic policy, some of the more fiscal conservatives and libertarians who specialize in non-foreign policy areas, to make them be a little bit more vocal on foreign policy. I, remember I, was, I was here you know, during the whole the, the, the 2006 when, when there didn't seem to be a whole lot of open dissent within the Republican Party on foreign policy, but you quietly heard a lot of these conservative uh, budget experts would kind of say, you know, gee, I don't know that this Iraq war thing is such a great idea. Um, you know, I don't know. 
but they didn't really, you know, being good disciples of Adam Smith, and we, we practice this specialization. So, you know, budget people talk about budget things, social conservatives talk about social things, and, and you know, foreign policy experts and national security experts talk about foreign policy things. And uh, the foreign policy experts we had were predominantly hawkish, you know, uh, you know, neoconservative or interventionist and various other flavors. And, you know, you'd hear these, these budget types saying, you know, around 2006, 2007, when things clearly were not going well in Iraq, saying, gee, you know, I don't know if these people we've hired to, to handle this foreign policy part of the right know what they're talking about. So there still needs, obviously, to be some foreign policy expertise that comes from a less interventionist perspective on the right. But, but I think in the meantime, before we can kind of cultivate those institutions and cultivate that talent in people, uh, I think that there is a vacuum that needs to be filled by people who are philosophically sympathetic to a less in interventionist foreign policy, but who specialize on other issues. I think that they uh, shouldn't necessarily let the division of labor uh, dictate what the Republican Party's foreign policy is going to be. The tragic events in Baltimore that began with the death of Freddie Gray while he was in police custody were a confluence of bad events. Some of the chief problems contributing to the unrest in Baltimore, poverty, taxation, and regulatory barriers to investment in low-income areas. Cato Senior Fellow Michael Tanner discussed these and other factors at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in May. If uh, Freddie Gray's death in Baltimore was the spark that set off the riots in Baltimore and the troubles there, there was an awful lot of gunpowder already lying around, uh, not just in terms of the police misconduct, but in terms of the general conditions under which people in that area of town had to live. If you look at Sandtown, the area where the incident happened in Baltimore, more than half the people there are unemployed. This is an area of town that doesn't have a single grocery store. There's not a single restaurant in the area, not even a fast food joint. So you have high unemployment, you have very few opportunities for people, and it's not surprising that there's a certain hopelessness and despair and frustration that sets in so that when there's an incident like Freddie Gray, it lights the spark that everything goes off. The question then becomes, how do you tamp this down? How do you solve the problems that beset an area like that? How do you give people less or more hope, more opportunity, a chance to get out from under the conditions they're living in in a place like Sandtown? Well, right after the riots, people thought about it. Politicians in particular thought about it for about 10 seconds and then immediately came up with their answer, which is that we need to spend more money. Uh, that we, we heard over and over again, we need to invest in our inner cities. President Obama said that. Uh, Congressman Cummings, who represents the Baltimore area, said that. Steny Hoyer said that. He represents Maryland in that area. I mean, it, constantly we heard this refrain, well, what we really need to do is spend more money because Baltimore has been neglected for years. The inner cities have been neglected for years. Poverty has been neglected in this country for years. The reality is there's very little evidence of neglect. We have been pouring money into poverty and into Baltimore in particular for decades. 
You know, if you want to go back to 1965 when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, we have spent $22 trillion in this country on anti-poverty programs. Uh, last year alone, the federal government spent $688 billion financing over 120 separate anti-poverty programs. State and local governments tossed in another $300 billion. So we're spending just about a trillion dollars last year on poverty. That doesn't strike me as neglect. And Baltimore, well, between 2003 and 2013, which is the last year we have complete data for, Baltimore received $6 billion in federal and state grants to fight poverty. And it received an additional $1.6 billion in stimulus money from the big stimulus uh, program that we had. And they've spent about $1.4 billion of that $1.6 billion so far. And yet we still see 25% of Baltimoreans living in poverty. We still see the problems that beset Sandtown. We're not getting a great deal of bang for our buck. And it might be because we're spending, kind of throwing money at the problem of poverty rather than dealing with the things we know actually can lift people out of poverty. Number one of those is a job. You know, less than 3% of people who work full time live below the poverty level. Yet, as we've seen, there's very few jobs available in inner-city Baltimore and in places like Sandtown. Well, one reason for that might be the fact that Maryland, and Baltimore in particular, have, among the, have some of the worst tax and regulatory climates for business in the nation. Maryland has the 10th worst business tax climate in the nation and the fifth worst personal income tax climate. When it comes to small business, there's this, they're the seventh highest marginal tax rate on small business in the nation. Now, if a business is going to try to locate in an area like inner city Baltimore, that's a high risk venture for that business. They're only going to do that if they see a substantial opportunity for return. And the more barriers, tax and regulatory barriers you put before them before they can invest in those areas, the less likely they're going to be to make those investments. You're not going to lure businesses to high poverty, high crime areas while you're still while you're sort of piling on additional regulations and additional taxes, which is the policy that Maryland has undertaken. Second is education. We know that if you drop out of school, chances are you're going to be poor. If you go on and graduate college, you're not. 25% of Baltimore students fail to graduate. The SAT scores in Baltimore are 100 points below the national average. And less than half of Baltimore students pass the standard assessment tests for high school. And yet Baltimore spends a great deal of money on education, over $16,500 per student in the Baltimore school system. Depending on how you want to measure it, Baltimore is between second and fourth highest spending big city in America when it comes to education. So we're spending money not getting good results. Why? Because the Baltimore school system acts more like its job is to protect teachers than to serve parents and students. Maryland has one of the worst, one of the strictest regulations of charter schools 
in the nation. As a result, there's only some 70 or so charter schools in the whole state of Baltimore. More students are educated in charter schools in Washington, D.C. than in the state of Maryland. Parents don't even have public school choice in, Mar in Maryland. If you're assigned to a district, you're essentially stuck in that district, no matter how bad the school is. If you're living in Sandtown and you're sent to a school down the street that's crime-ridden, doesn't have textbooks, does it, the teachers don't teach, you're stuck there. You don't have the opportunity to send your kids somewhere else, let alone things like vouchers or tuition tax credits or something that really would give parents control over the students. So we fail on jobs, we fail on education, and finally, we fail on family formation. We know that one of the keys to being not poor, or one of the poor keys to getting out of poverty, is waiting until you're married to have a kid. Now, this is not a moral judgment. It's an economic one. You're five times more likely to live in poverty if you give birth without a father or without a husband than if you wait until you get married uh, before you have children. And yet, we have two separate policies in place that increase out-of-wedlock birth in Maryland. Number one is extremely high level of welfare benefits, often conditioned on not having a father's income in the family. And second, as we've already heard, a war on drugs that criminalizes young men, gives them a criminal record that makes it very difficult for them to get employment in the future, and also, in the words of William Julius Wilson from Harvard, makes them not marriageable. Uh, if you're a single woman in the inner city and you're looking for a husband, uh, chances are much more difficult to find one because they're, they can't get a job, they, they're not set for marriage, they're not set for families because they have this criminal record that they're tied to. And then on the other side of it, we say, okay, well, if you have a child, we'll still give you all these welfare benefits uh, on that side of it. So it's not surprising that two-thirds of the births in Baltimore are to unmarried women and more than half the households in Baltimore are headed by single women. Innovation in medicine is stymied by a regulatory model rooted in the progressive era, where if a new way of doing things is not expressly permitted, it is very likely forbidden. Jeff Rose is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, at the Cato Institute in May, Rose discussed the legal impediments to the burgeoning field of telemedicine. One of the reasons why telemedicine presents such a challenge is because medicine is a vivid illustration of a peculiar reality in America, which is everything is forbidden unless it is expressly permitted. So this amazing, interesting, fresh innovation comes along, and all the medical boards say, well, we can't do that. We need to write 10,000 regulations to be able to do it. We have to completely subdue it with the regulatory process because, after all, this is America. If we don't have a telemedicine statute, you can be certain of one thing. You better not be doing it. And in part, that's because we have a 19th century or early 20th century regulatory model. We have 50 different states, each with their own regulatory boards, and that doesn't even take into account the fact that Americans can now talk to people all over the world. There are billions of people who would benefit from the expertise of well-educated Americans, and it's completely unclear whether or not they can get it. Now, the thing about telemedicine is that, at bottom, it's just two people talking to each other. That's it. 
people are talking to each other. One person wants some knowledge that another person has, and they want to share it. Now, at least by reputation, we live in a free country. So what does the First Amendment, uh, the free speech clause in particular, have to say about that? And this turns out to be a really interesting and one of the most important unsettled questions in constitutional law. So let me begin by telling you a story. Imagine, uh, and this is a true story, imagine a group of Scottish missionaries go to rural Nigeria and a married couple finds a stray cat and they think we're gonna adopt the stray cat. But there are no veterinarians in rural Nigeria. There's no pet food in rural Nigeria. But one thing they have is a cell phone tower. And so these missionaries can get on the internet. Now, go all the way around the planet and you'll find Ron Hines. He is a retired, physically disabled, Texas licensed veterinarian. He has a PhD in biology. Um, he spent his career working um, with exotic animals at a research facility uh, here in Maryland. He worked at SeaWorld. He was in private practice. Um, he's just an amazing veterinarian who, after he retired because his disabilities made it impossible for him to continue to work, he still wanted to be able to help animals. So one day, he and the missionaries in rural Nigeria start writing emails to each other about what to do about the cat. How should we feed the cat? How can we make sure that this cat stays healthy? It was a stray cat. What are the things we should be looking out for? So Ron and the, and the missionaries are, are exchanging emails. And Ron starts doing this with some other people too, mostly for free, um, although occasionally he would charge people a flat fee of a couple of bucks um, just to sort of help him cover the cost of keeping his website going. He never made any, any money doing it. Um, so what has just transpired? A disabled 70-year-old man in Texas writes an email to a Scottish missionary about a cat in Nigeria. That's a crime. And Ron Hines had his veterinary license suspended. He was fined. He was forced to retake a portion of the veterinary licensing exam. And he had to shut down his website and stop doing it. And why is that? Because under Texas law, you have to physically examine the animal before you can offer any opinion about it. So this housebound, phys physically disabled veterinarian was supposed to get on an airplane and fly to Nigeria before he could offer an opinion of any kind about this cat. And never mind that there are no veterinarians and the cat would be completely without medical care or, or veterinary care without Ron. And you know, Ron wasn't prescribing medication. He wasn't sending drugs. He was just offering an opinion. That's it. Two people talking to each other. So what does the First Amendment have to say about that? Because after all, the First Amendment is supposed to protect the right of Americans and uh, of which Ron Hines is an American, and indeed anybody subject to American jurisdiction, generally speaking, to be able to have useful conversations about the world. Well, we brought a First Amendment lawsuit, and the trial court, the federal trial court, said, you know what, you're right. The First Amendment applies. Uh, the state of Texas tried to get it dismissed on the ground that when two people talk to each other, if that conversation is subject to occupational licensing, the conversation is by definition physical conduct. So if Ron Hines writes an email that says, you know, you should try to, you know, maybe feed your cat some shredded pork or something like that. The law treats that as though Ron Hines is taking a scalpel and cutting a hole in the animal. They say, by definition, it is conduct, even if it's just words. And so the First Amendment doesn't apply at all. It's not that the First Amendment applies and you happen to lose under whatever First Amendment balancing test there is. It's that it doesn't apply at all. So the, the federal trial court said, you know what, the First Amendment applies to this. After all, this is just two people speaking. So then the, the state of Texas asked for a special kind of appeal and we went up to the Federal Court of Appeals and the, in March, the Federal Court of Appeals reversed. And they said, you know what? We disagree with the trial court. Um, we are going to call that conduct. If you are speaking 
and you are giving someone individualized personal advice, we're going to call that conduct. So what's going on? Well, what's going on here is the collision between two venerable constitutional doctrines. One is that state governments have broad authority to license occupations. That is well established in the law. We challenge it all the time at IJ. It leads to all kinds of rational barriers to entry. One of the reasons why medicine and other kinds of professions are expensive and hard to get into is because lobbyists aggressively create all kinds of um, occupational barriers. But anyway, set that aside. The Supreme Court has said states have broad latitude. The Supreme Court has also said that the, the protections of the First Amendment are broad. And so what happens when those two things intersect? Well, the Supreme Court had an interesting case um, several years ago that was about advice to foreign terrorists. And some American doctors and physicians were providing individualized technical advice to foreign terrorist groups about how to resolve their grievances nonviolently. One was um, Kurdish Liberation Movement, and another one was the Tamil, uh, Tamil Liberation Movement in Sri Lanka. And so the, the these groups were concerned about being prosecuted by the federal government for providing individualized advice, which the, which the federal government considered to be material support to terrorist groups. And so the question that went up to the Supreme Court was, is individualized advice that consists of nothing but speech, you're not sending them money or guns or bombs or anything, you're just talking to them about the law, is that something protected by the First Amendment? And the Supreme Court said, yes, the First Amendment applies. Now, it turns out that the government has a, the federal government has a huge interest in suppressing um, advice to terrorists because it's just kind of fungible. That just frees up resources for terrorists to do other things. But the First, but the First Amendment applies. So we actually tried to take that precedent, and we said to you know we said to the federal court in the Fifth Circuit, we said, look, if the First Amendment at least applies to individualized techn technical advice to murderous foreign terrorists, surely it applies to this utterly harmless disabled veterinarian in Texas who's just talking to somebody about a cat. And the court said, no, no. Here's another interesting case about the First Amendment uh, that's also from a few years ago, US v. Stevens, which involved uh, what are called animal crush videos. And so there are people out there, um, perhaps, uh, you know, probably not anybody in this room, but there are people out there who like to exchange videos about animals getting tortured. And that provides them with sexual titillation. And so the question that the Supreme Court addressed is whether or not the First Amendment applies to a statute that restricts um, communication in the form of animal crush videos. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? This is America. This might be repugnant speech, but the First Amendment applies to repugnant speech. And so the First Amendment applies to animal crush videos. And so what does this mean for Ron Hines, the veterinarian in Texas? Well, what it means is if he decided that he wanted to talk to Kurdish terrorists about how to, like, let's say they have a herd of cattle or something like that, and they're using that herd of cattle um, to sort of support their fighters or something, he could talk to them about that. And the First Amendment would apply to that conversation if he were to be prosecuted by the federal government for providing material support to terrorists. Now, if Ron Hines also wanted to exchange animal crush videos with Scottish missionaries in rural Nigeria, the First Amendment would apply to animal crush videos. But according to the Fifth Circuit, the First Amendment doesn't apply if Ron Hines is actually just trying to help an animal. So if he wants to help terrorists or he wants to trade fetish videos, no problem. But if he just actually wants to sit down and talk to somebody to help their animal, nope, no First Amendment protection. So this is actually um, a big issue. The federal courts of appeal disagree 
about the extent to which the First Amendment applies. So we have a case from the early 2000s in California, it's Conant v. Walters, that involved medical marijuana. And this was before, California at that point I think had said that medical marijuana would be okay, that physicians could prescribe it, but it's still, as it is now, it's actually still illegal under federal law. And so doctors have a controlled substances license from the drug enforcement agency to be able to prescribe drugs. And it turned out that this, there, you know, there are a group of doctors who wanted to be able to say to their patients, look, I'm not going to prescribe marijuana for you. I can't do that. But I'm going to tell you that actually in your case, I think there's a valid medical reason for using marijuana. So it was just a, it's just a conversation between a doctor and a patient. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said, you know what? The First Amendment protects that conversation and that the Drug Enforcement Agency can't pull your controlled substances license just because you're a doctor having a conversation with a patient about medical marijuana, as long as you're not illegally prescribing it because the First Amendment applies even to doctor-patient communications. That should have been a good case for us. And in fact, we cited it extensively um, in the Fifth Circuit. But on the, on the other end of the um, country, in the Eleventh Circuit, there's a case that's going on right now that's sometimes called the Glocks versus Docs case, which is about guns. And some gun rights activists got a law passed in Florida that forbade physicians from asking their patients about whether they own guns, whether they keep guns loaded. You know, sometimes you go to the doctor and the doctor might say, you know, as part of a checkup, might say, you know, you're wearing your seatbelt or, you know, because accidents actually, you know, kill people. And, and accidental gun discharges or, you know, suicide by gun, those are, you know, legitimate public health issues. So anyway, uh, the gun lobby didn't like the fact that some doctors were asking people about guns and they thought it was an invasion of privacy. So they got a law passed that said doctors aren't allowed to ask people about guns. And so, of course, uh, a group of doctors brought a lawsuit and said, look, the First Amendment protects my right to have a conversation with, with a patient. And that just because we're in a um, doctor-patient relationship doesn't mean that we have completely surrendered our free speech rights and the government can tell us to say and do whatever we want. Now, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said, nope, when a doctor is having a conversation with a patient, even if it is just a conversation, you're not touching them, you're not doing anything, that is conduct to which the First Amendment doesn't apply. Now, you may notice that the medical marijuana issue is kind of a liberal issue, right? And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the, on the West Coast, kind of a liberal court. And on that liberal issue, the liberal court decided that the First Amendment applied. Now, the Eleventh Circuit's kind of a conservative court. And this was like a pro-gun thing. And wow, coincidentally, the kind of conservative court decided that the First Amendment didn't apply when it was a conservative issue. But we have a square disagreement among the federal courts of appeal um, a disagreement that was exacerbated by the decision in the vet speech case that just came down. And so the Supreme Court actually has to step in. And the Supreme Court is going to have to decide whether or not the First Amendment applies when there is a conflict between occupational licensing and free speech. And um, so we're in the process right now of, of writing our petition to the Supreme Court in the vet speech case. And this is actually the perfect case. Because what's going on here is you have Ron Hines talking to people generally speaking on the other side of the world about animals. That's it, they're exchanging emails about animals. So this isn't even like, you know, the most intense telemedicine context you can imagine. This is right at the edge. And so if the First Amendment is ever going to apply to protect the free speech rights of licensed professionals and their clients, then it is going to apply in the context of Ron Hines' case. And this is the perfect clean case for the Supreme Court to take. Now, and the other thing too is that there, there are some cases making their way through the, the court system right now that have to do with what's called reparative therapy, which is providing psychological counseling, generally speaking, to minors who uh, are gay or say they're gay and their parents don't like it and so they send them usually to Christian-based psychologists. And there's a movement 
that says, well, the First Amendment should protect the right of therapists to engage in gay conversion therapy. Um, now, one of the great things about the Ron Hines case is that it is just about people talking about animals. It's not about gay rights. It's not about guns. It's not about medical marijuana. It's not about any of these hot-button cultural issues. It presents the case perfectly in a benign context where the Supreme Court can address the First Amendment question without worrying about making collateral statements that might have ramifications in other areas of the law. So um, fingers crossed, we're going to try to get the Supreme Court to take the case. And perhaps this time next year, we'll get a decision from the Supreme Court that will tell us whether or not and to what extent the First Amendment applies to occupational licensing. And this will have implications far beyond the practice of veterinary medicine. It will be regular medicine. It will be psychology. It will be law. It will be financial advice. All kinds of things that can be done through a distance as a result of the internet. A limited constitutional government calls for a free market monetary system with a stable valued dollar. That's not what we have now under central banking. The newest issue of Cato Journal, based on lectures presented at the 2014 Cato Monetary Conference, examines the constitutional basis for alternatives to central banking, the role of gold in a market-based monetary system, the obstacles to fundamental reform, and the advent of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You can get a free copy of the latest issue of Cato Journal online at cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.